for some reason, like, they get the story in a way that uh, these kind of other iterations haven't. I've really, I've really come to respect that. Um, but uh, you get the basic general um, uh, idea you've seen Christmas Carol before. Today we're talking about the ghost of Christmas present. So, um, but before we do that, uh, would you please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. These words of the Apostle Paul, they reflect some of the themes of this current season, themes of celebration, a call to reasonable prudence in the face of societal pressure, life in community, a knowledge that the Lord is always with us, and the thought that when we make requests, we are to do so under the umbrella of thanksgiving. It is these truths that lead us towards hope, towards peace, towards joy, towards love. It's interesting that Paul should marry the exhortation to celebratory joy, or rejoicing, with a call to reasonableness, or gentleness, as some of your translations might say. See, there's a tension there. That, that tension, it points us in the direction of the thought that hope and peace and joy and love are not like abstract principles or like merely gushy feelings. They are not merely feelings to be experienced. They are virtues to be practiced. They are skills to be developed I love the Rocky movies, and you see them like lifting these like you know, big heavy weights and going through these training kind of montages. What would it look like for you to go through a training montage, building up your skills of hope and peace and love and joy? Last week, Dan Broadwater shared with us this truth that God brings peace to our past, past through the love that he has for us. Again, love is, is not some kind of abstract principle, but rather was defined for us when God sent his son Jesus to begin the process of putting this world back into right relationship with himself. As such, our present call is to live a life of thanksgiving for the abundance of love that he has shown us. Fully aware of God's mercy with always another rejoice on our lips. Paul says, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. One writer says, puts it this way. He says, the joy that Paul calls for is not a happiness that depends on circumstances, but a deep contentment that is in the Lord, based on trust in the sovereign living God, and therefore is available always, even in difficult times. For me personally, I think 
I can best embrace this radical call to joy when I see myself in the midst of the larger... Okay, thank you. You ready? You ready to go? You really are? All right, we'll get there in a minute if you're really ready to go. Okay, I'll get there in a second. He put up a sign saying, it's ready if you want it. <laughs> Way to go, Andrew. Um, we'll get there in just a moment. For me personally, I can best embrace this radical call to joy when I see myself in the midst of the larger story that God is telling. See, our Father is the author of creation. Our Father is the author of life itself. And on a universal level, God is telling this grand story of creation to new creation. See, he's putting things right that, as Darcy said, have been misaligned from his kingdom. And the story is so much bigger than merely our own personal tales of salvation. But those personal salvations, the ones that each one of us could tell, they are still there. See, this holy author of life speaks to you and I. It cleanses us from our sins of our past and then calls us to live a present life of joy. I think that if I'm asked, if I was asked to say one word that would describe my own personal faith over the past decade or so, it would be the word story. Stories bookend our lives in a way. Some of, some of our earliest memories are probably of our parents reading us bedtime stories. When we listen to our, our, our mom or our dad or another trusted voice, um, they give us these words that are put together in such a way as to inspire us and comfort us and teach us and form us. In a different way, perhaps our, our final memories are of looking back on a life lived with all of its complexities, with its light and its darkness. Sometimes we hear that those who have had like a, a near-death experience, they might say, my life flashed before our eyes. In that moment, thank you, Alicia. We might think about what we truly care for as we run the narrative of our lives through our brains. Stories, whether they are our own or someone else's, can have a powerful effect on our character. I believe that we should never get too old for a good story. In this light, New Hope has chosen to focus on one particular story this Advent season. was left alone and exhausted in his bedchamber. And thus he remained until the nearby clock began to strike the hour. <laughs> oh, 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 what was that? Two o'clock. Oh, is it uh, too early for breakfast? Yes. Oh, good, supper time. Scrooge knew that the second of the ghosts was due to appear, yet now, as the clock finished striking, nothing. Ho, 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 come in and know me better, man. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> 
Call me Batterman. Uh, did I already say that? You did, yeah. I am the ghost of Christmas present. This is the night before the dawn, before the day of Christmas. <laughs> did I tell you that I am the ghost of Christmas present? You did, yeah. Come in and know me better, man. <laughs> You're a little absent-minded spirit. No, I'm a large absent-minded spirit. <laughs> my mind is filled with the here and now. And the now is... Christmas! <laughs> I don't believe I've ever met anybody like you before, sir. Really? Over 1,800 of my brothers have come before me. 1,800? Imagine the grocery bills. <laughs> have you ever noticed that everything seems wonderful at Christmas? Uh, in all honesty, spirit, Perhaps I, I've never understood about Christmas. Before this day is done, you will understand. Oh, 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 oh no, oh, oh no! Ah, we shall go out into the world. Oh. <laughs> I suppose you enjoyed that. Quirk. So in 1843, 175 years ago, Charles Dickens released his classic, A Christmas Carol. The story was immediately and wildly popular in both Europe and America. In fact, in 1867, Dickens took A Christmas Carol on a three-month-long American tour. It was like the, the Rolling Stones. Um, 10,000 tickets were sold in Boston alone. He wrote the story not merely um, as a tale of what Christmas was like in the 19th century, but rather as an argument for what he felt that it should be. He wanted you to see yourself in Ebenezer Scrooge, being challenged to live a life more of generosity and joy and celebration. He wanted you to consider what a family Christmas could be like with special food and music and games. He even wanted to encourage the marketplace to close business on Christmas Day. You, you might have noticed, this gets a little bit ahead of the story, but you might have noticed in the final scene when Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning with this new drowned, newfound joy in his heart, he flings wide his bedroom window and shouts down at this passing boy on the street. He asks the boy what day it is. And the boy says, well, today, today is Christmas Day. And Scrooge then asks the boy, well, go to the nearest shop and purchase that big turkey that was hanging in the window. And so, apparently, both Scrooge and the boy they both assumed that the shop would be open on Christmas morning. See, Dickens had a vision for what he thought Christmas could be for his community. It was how he attempted to bring the joy of the Christmas season into his own present day, and in large part, um, that vision stuck and has continued to stick for 175 years. I mean, the story might win some sort of, like, record for the most iterations. I mean, who is your favorite Scrooge? Alistair Sim, George C. Scott, Patrick Stewart, Kelsey Grammer, Michael Caine, Bill Murray, or my favorite, Scrooge McDuck. The list goes on and on. Evidently, this is a story we don't mind telling 
again and again and again. What is it about a story that we don't mind telling over and over again? In the book, by the time Scrooge finishes his time with the ghost of Christmas past, he is completely undone. Scrooge is shown shadows of the past until he can't take it any longer. And in a broken voice, he asks the Spirit to stop. And the Spirit says, hey, listen, I told you these were shadows of things that have been, that they are what they are. Do not blame me. Upon hearing this, Scrooge grabs some sort of extinguisher. This doesn't make it in a lot of the movies. He grabs some sort of extinguisher extinguisher, and attempts to, to slam it, a cover the light emanating from the ghost of Christmas past. So exhausted from the attempt, he collapses and he finds himself suddenly back in his own bed and falls into a deep sleep. In this week's portion of the story, Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Christmas present. A character who, in most iterations of the story, resembles something like a a Santa Claus-type character. In fact, the Santa myth was still developing from a variety of sources at the time, and perhaps we could think of the ghost of Christmas present as kind of Dickens' contribution to the development of that myth. For my money, I think that this section is the most important of the book. As the first spirit says, you can't change the past. The the past is the past. It is what it was. We can so often waste our time dwelling in the past at the expense of the present. See, we can long for the days gone by with such intensity that we do two things. First, we create an idol of the past that invents a story that never really took place. The sad truth is that the good old days probably weren't as good as you remember them. But sadly, we can also dwell on the past so intensely that we lose sight of the present. We lose sight with the here and now. I love how the spirit in the Muppet Christmas Carol says that that his business is the here and now. Scrooge is beckoned into the room by this joyous giant who says, Come in and know me better, man. Come in. And see your present reality in a way that you've never experienced before. Let me show you the opportunities for joy in your life today. Scrooge enters the room, which is just lit up like it's never been lit up before. And around the giant is this abundant feast of all sorts of delicious foods. The book says it was his own room. There was no doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The scene symbolizes the present joy that Scrooge had failed to see for so many years. The ghost takes him on a tour of how various people, various people in his life, are experiencing Christmas joy surrounded by family and food and laughter. He's often also taken to, to see people that he's neglected. People who Scrooge has failed to see. People who were potential sources for joy in his life. There's one particular scene where Scrooge is taken to the home of his employee, Bob Cratchit. It's a beautifully written scene that shows this Cratchit family preparing uh, for Christmas dinner. See, they're an incredibly poor family with far too many mouths to feed considering the amount of money in their pockets and food on their table. 
But still, they, they have a way of echoing the Apostle Paul. And that even though they have nothing, they somehow possess everything. They have a joy about them that is just infectious. It's, it's palpable. It's, it's in the atmosphere. It's so intense and present among them that it's, that it's almost tangible. At one point in the story, Bob Cratchit and his disabled son, Tiny Tim, come home from church, and Mrs. Cratchit asks how Tim had behaved during service. As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow, he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much, and he thinks the strangest things you've ever heard. He told me coming home, that he hoped that people saw him in church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Dickens then adds that Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this and trembled all the more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and healthy. The scene then shows a picture of a family exceedingly thankful for all that they have and overwhelmed with joy simply at the thought that they are together. What would it take for you and I, for us to experience that sort of palpable joy this Christmas? Maybe for you this morning, it feels distant. It feels unrealistic. Maybe you can be honest the way Scrooge was honest when the, the, Christmas, the, the Spirit says, hey, haven't you ever noticed that, that everything's great around Christmas time? And Scrooge is just, to be honest with you, I, I haven't. Please don't misunderstand me. Now, I don't mean to imply that if you are unable to look past your sorrows and smile that you're just some sort of Scrooge. Considering the story at hand, it would have been absolutely appropriate for the Cratchit family to lament their circumstances. See, their family was short on resources and their son was ill. It would not have been wrong for them to shed tears over the reality of their situation. That muscle is perhaps something that we don't exercise enough as well. And it's, in, it's, in, uh, it's inside the biblical narrative. You know, there's actually an entire book of the Bible that is just filled with lamentation. It's called Lamentations. And it's all about how this great city of Jerusalem was devastated after Babylonian invasion. It begins with this. This is how the book starts. This is a book of the Bible. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night and tears on her cheeks, with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends, they've dealt treacherously with her, and they have become her enemies. The book goes on for five chapters and eventually develops into poetry regarding God's faithfulness and God's restorative power, but not before there is a time of weeping over what was lost. It's as if they needed to lament their reality before they could declare their hope. 
Let me, see, let me say that again. It's as if they needed to lament their reality before they could declare their hope. At the end of the section of uh, the Ghost of Christmas Present, one of the last things that happened before the Ghost of Christmas Future comes on the scene is that Scrooge looks at the ghost and he says, Spirit, there's seems to be something protruding from your robe. This is a hard thing to, to show. A lot of things, hard things, so a lot of movies don't, don't actually do it, but it's in the book. A couple of them actually do. There's something protruding from, from your robe there. And Scrooge notices that it's actually two children, two children that look destitute, that look sickly. And the Spirit says, there's a boy and a girl. The boy is ignorance and the girl is want. Fear them both. But fear the boy more. Fear ignorance. So one of the things that we must do if we are to actually truly do business with joy, to embrace joy, to think about what does it actually mean to have joy in my heart at Christmas time, might just be that I need to do business with the reality of my situation. I need to take that moment to lament before I need to name the thing that I lament so that I I can then name the hope that I have over it. You see, biblical joy is not simply the presence of happiness. I, I love how the guys from the Bible Project put it. If you're not following the Bible Project, please do. It is just a fantastic resource. They say, biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. Biblical joy is an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. As Dickens referenced, true joy will be found when we are able to turn our eyes on he who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. See, that was exactly the truth that Paul knew when he was writing to the church in Philippi. The letter called Philippians is one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible. It is a masterpiece of theology, and it is also a compelling argument for why we have every reason to be filled with joy, even in the midst of hardship. Paul is, is writing during some sort of imprisonment. There is a discussion among scholars about whether or not he was in an actual prison or just some sort of house arrest, but, but what is clear is that Paul was able to grasp hold of this remarkable perspective that fueled his joy. It was um, a joy that was not merely in spite of suffering, but rather a joy that was in light of suffering. Let me say that again. This was a joy that was not merely in spite of suffering. Rather, Paul describes in Philippians a joy that was in light of suffering. For the prisoner Paul and for the persecuted church for, with whom Paul was writing to, suffering, it was not an abstract principle. It was a current reality. But the church in Philippi played a key role in supporting the apostle financially. You could look at the letter as like a love letter from Paul to the Philippian church, uh, but a better way to say it is that it's a love letter to God because of the Philippian church. He begins the letter, I thank my God, this is in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, 
I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, says Paul, that he who began a good work in you will carry it, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is writing as a man who knows how the story ends. His joy is fueled by the belief that God finishes what he starts. Sure, there may be suffering at this present moment, but there is a joy to be found even in this because, says Paul, I know how the story ends. He goes on to say, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been, become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So in one sense, Paul is acknowledging the reality of his current situation. There is suffering, make no doubt about that. But there he is anyway, declaring to the church in Philippi that his hope, his ultimate hope, is in Christ. In Christ, his suffering is not in vain. How easy would it have been for Paul to just say, you know what, I could care less about the imperial guard. In fact, I hope they burn. But Paul does something very different than that. Instead of cursing those who imprison them, he says, he tells this church in Philippi who's supporting him, hey, hey, it's important to me that you know that even in this, I feel God's hand. Even in the midst of suffering, I feel Christ's love. Every day I see the dark reality of my present situation because I know who it was that made lame beggars walk and blind men see. I trust that even in this, God will be faithful. For that I rejoice. I rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. For that reason, I don't just look for joy and name it when I feel happy. I learned to practice it by opening my eyes to the rooms of my life that I've been keeping dark. The epilogue of A Christmas Carol shows a Scrooge who becomes like a second father to the Cratchit family. He had closed his eyes to a source of joy and the Spirit helped him to see the joy that was there the whole time. You see, I believe that we discover that joy, that joy, when we are able to see ourselves in the context of the story, the big story in which Christmas is the centerpiece. It's a story that goes like this. It's a story, by the way, that needs to be told over and over and over and over again. Uh, there's something about a story that, that bears repeating. It goes like this. It says that our God created a rich, dynamic world full of beauty, full of wonder, full of life, the kind of environment that is just palpable with joy. He then created a humanity 
to be stewards of this creation. And his design was such that, this des- that he desired humanity to be in a holy, intimate union with him. The sort of union that was palpable with joy, or we might say family. He was God and they were his people. Like that's how the world was supposed to work. Such as a simple idea. He was God and they were his people. That was the plan. But humanity rebelled. Humanity rebelled and began to lose the plot of the story that God was telling. And in order to save that which was lost, God created this rescue mission to save the world, which he called Israel. Israel was blessed not to the exclusion of others, but rather for the benefit of others. God promised that somehow through Israel, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Israel's story was one of ups and downs, to say the least. And in time, they found that they were once again oppressed by the superpower of the day. And they might have had a hard time seeing how God would bless the world through them, while they were under the thumb of the oppressive Roman Empire. But then God did the most unlikely thing imaginable. Instead of sending a mighty army, he sent this child named Jesus, who would then change the course of human history. You see, it was this Jesus as Paul says in Philippians, who, being in very nature God, didn't see equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptying himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. That death was for you and I, so that in Christ we might return to intimacy with God, building for God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, and waiting with palpable, joyful anticipation for God to restore His creation once again, for heaven and earth to be one, and for God's people to once again be in right relation, intimate relation with their King. That's our story. That's what Jesus did with His suffering. My friends, I do not say that there have not been tears that have been worth crying. I don't say that there will not be tears to come. I only know this. I know that one day, God will wipe away every tear. And it is because I know that, and it is because I see myself and I see our church, I see our communities, I see our society, I see our nation in the midst of that story. It's because I have that perspective and that context on all this garbage that's around us. It's with that that I have the freedom to embrace joy today. I have the freedom to embrace laughter and cheerfulness and music and encouragement and food and kindness and generosity and love. Freedom. It is for freedom that He has set us free. It's with that spirit that we come and we approach the Lord's table today for communion, the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Our communion table at New Hope is open to all those who call upon our 
the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you are not there, if you haven't yet made the decision to follow Christ, you need to know that we love you. You need to know that you are welcome here. And you're welcome to think of New Hope as a place where you can be not having to hide your doubts or your questions. When we take communion, don't feel obligated to participate. Feel free to just take a few moments of silence in your seat. I will add this, though, that communion is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted, the other being baptism. Baptism is a public declaration of your faith, so if you decide to come forward for communion and you have uh, yet to be baptized, that's okay, but I would ask for you to consider coming to me later to discuss the possibility of making that public declaration of your faith soon. The bread is unleavened. There's also gluten-free crackers. Uh, the red is wine and the white is grape juice. After coming forward, I'll ask you all to go uh, take the elements back to your seats and we'll partake together.